from Zen teacher Wang Po. Our original Buddha nature is in highest truth, devoid of any atom of objectivity. It is fluid, omnipresent, silent, pure. It is glorious and mysterious, peaceful joy. And that's all. Enter deeply into it by awakening to it yourself. Your total life is it. In all its fullness, utterly complete. There is naught beside. Even if you go through all the stages of a bodhisattva's progress towards Buddhahood, one by one, when it lasts in a single flash, you attain to full realization, you will only be realizing the Buddha nature, which has been with you all the time. By all the foregoing stages, you will have added nothing to it. And yet, the years of practice will have many effects. That's why the Tathagata said, I truly attain nothing from complete, unexcelled enlightenment. Had there been anything attained, Dipankara Buddha would not have made the prophecy concerning me. He also said, the Buddha also said, this Dharma is, com- is absolutely without distinctions, neither high nor low. We call it Bodhi. It is the pure foundation of awareness, which is the source of everything and which whether appearing as sentient beings or as Buddhas, as rivers and mountains of the world which have form, or as that which is formless, or as penetrating the whole universe, is absolutely without distinctions. There be no such entities as selfness and otherness. Rohatsu Sashin about awakening. And awakening is, as we said, not about getting something, but about waking up and realizing what is present right here, right now. And then seeing it without the dense filters of our fixed beliefs. I mean, of course, they're part of it also, but we don't recognize that. We mistake our fixed beliefs for truth. And even if we were able to, right in this moment, recognize and wake up to what is fundamentally true, we still have a lifetime of work to do. Why? To see what is most fundamentally true, to accept it, to embody it, and to live out of its functioning takes a lifetime. Our habitual habits, our habitual patterns, our habitual places are so dense that even if we recognize something that is fundamentally essential, we still have to keep practicing. And why do we say we still have to keep practicing? Because it is our life, it is our body, it is our mind, it is this present moment. And this body requires us to eat, to sleep, to excrete, to relate to others. 
and that, that learning about how to do, how to live life skillfully is part of the unfolding of the Buddha Dharma, unfolding of the fullness of truth. It is the expression of the fundamental reality of this life. If we're looking at it from a nihilistic perspective, it doesn't matter whether we do that or not. But it does matter that we eat. It does matter that we are engaged in this life. And that's not nihilism. So practice is vital. Whether we recognize it as something that comes from fundamental or whether it simply is the pain of our life asking us to pay attention and to do something about it. Practice is fundamental. Practice is essential. Practice is part of who we are. So we may have a fundamental insight and see the world as working perfectly. Nature is unfolding as nature unfolds. But if we don't, as our individual self, respond to others, then that insight is misguided. Everything is asking for our attention. Everything is asking us to respond. Everything is saying, look, get closer. It's your life. So Wang Po a uh, great Zen, great Zen Chan master from the ninth century, kind of in the early stage of the early first half of the Tang Dynasty, says, Our original Buddha nature is in highest truth devoid of any atom of objectivity. Before I comment on that, this is Ruhatsu Sishin. And it is important that people have a good, solid foundation, as we do Rohatsu. How we sit is important. How we sit is part of that manifestation of the life energy. To sit erect, to be able to breathe fully, to be alert, is an intimate part of practice. And most people who have been here many times realize that, that our posture reflects our state of mind. So to hold hold oneself erect without being stiff, to hold oneself with power without straining is part of practice. And, you know, if you haven't been sitting for a few years, it takes some adjustment, takes some time to find the right tools, the right leg position, and then you have to vary that because of the body's being unfamiliar with those postures. The hands, I think, are important. The classic way in the Buddhist tradition is to hold them in the, the cosmic mudra, left over right, or I sometimes intertwine my fingers so they're balanced. But there's power in that mudra. There's power there without strain. There's power there. There's a potential energy. You can feel the strength there. Other people hold their hands in different ways. It's all right. It's the way we, we do it here. But to have your life energy alert and vital and present. The hand posture, I feel, often helps that. 
Certainly the degrees and traditions all emphasize that. So we come, we take a day to kind of get used to the, get our sea legs, takes a day to begin to figuring out our posture, takes a day to get used to all the rhythms of, of session if we haven't been here for dozens of times before. It all will pass. But the essential points are true from right now through always. As Wang Po says, the essential, the original Buddha nature is in highest truth devoid of any atom of objectivity. Devoid of any atom of objectivity. Devoid of the slightest trace of objectivity. The original Buddha nature is not objective. Objective implies that somehow there's a truth that is out there, that's floating in the universe, that is not, that we are not somehow part of, that we can have a, a vision or look at things without the, our particular personality, our particular filters being part of. In, in talking about time, you know, the, the basic Newtonian approach is that there is this objective thing called time and space, which exists a priori and is always there. And that certainly works well. It's certainly a reasonable uh, approach for understanding physics at a certain level, but it is not, it's not the reality of Dharma. Because in Dharma, in our practice, in our life, Everything is intimate. Everything is intimate. Everything. So we feel our body intimately. That's what it means by intimate. We hear the sound intimately. We hear it closely. We don't hear it someplace else. We hear it right at our, well, at the very least, our tympanic membrane, and perhaps even more intimately than that. Where consciousness is, is an interesting question. But we also, we think, E equals MC squared, that thought is very intimate. Shakespeare, that thought is very intimate. Everything is right here. It's intimate. We think of Trump, intimate. Poverty, intimate. Uganda, Cerulean Sea. All experience right where you are because they are, in our particular case, made up of thought. No thought. So, the Dharma is intimate. We see intimately, right close. It's very close we recognize that. This, the seer, the seeing, and the object are all one thing. They're all held intimately. Sound, hearing, the tone, all intimate, all right here. Well, it doesn't mean we can't use abstract thought, we can't use you know, cognition in different ways, but it's intimate, it still is right here. We can't escape that. And we, if we try to investigate it and say, okay, can I see something outside of myself? You're still the I, so to speak, 
is trying to see it. We can't escape that. So if we think of there are greedy people out there in the world, there are evil people out there in the world that are causing this, that, or the other, that very thought is right here. That very thought is intimate. That very idea is intimate. There is no evidence. There is no evidence that there is something not intimate, that not our thinking, our seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. All intimate right here. And as Wang Po says, the original Buddha nature is, in highest truth, devoid of any atom of separation. Everything we experience is part of our life. We just imagine, we just imagine that there is a separation between the eye and the object that is seen. But if we look closely, the eye, the seeing, and the object, there is no separation. He says, it is fluid, omnipresent, silent, and pure. Glorious and mysterious, peaceful. And that's all. Enter deeply into it by awakening to yourself. Your total life is it in all fullness. Your total life. So it does not matter whether this is our first retreat and we're aching and complaining. That is our total life is part of the great mystery, is part of fundamental awareness. It doesn't matter whether we have practiced for decades and have a clear sense of the interconnectedness of all life and a clear sense of the, 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 the nothing but fluidity of all life and all things. It's still, it still is a fundamental expression of, can't say awareness because that kind of implies my awareness, but fundamental reality. Now, if we carry that way a little bit far, we get into solipsism. We get into the, the kind of the idea that I am the only thing in the universe. The universe is all around me. There's just nothing but me. I mean, there is no way of contradicting that, but it's only half the truth. Because if we look inside and we say, where is that me? We can't find anyone in there. Who is it who's thinking your thoughts? Who is it who feels your pain? Who is it who has your worries? Who is it? What is it? And we look in there, we look inside, if there is an inside, and we turn our attention in that direction, whatever direction that is, and we can't find a source. So, in a way, it's the opposite of solipsism. There's nothing in there. And in that nothing in there and nothing out there, it's all our life. It's all unfolding. It's not nothing. It's not nihilism. It's all unfolding. Fluid, omnipresent, silent, pure. Enter deeply into it by awakening to it. Your total life is it in all its fullness. No inside, nothing outside. Everything outside is included. Everything inside is spacious. 
If we look and say, who is it that's speaking, thinking, aware, we have, all of us have done this, we've turned our mind in there and say, I can't find anything. I don't know. And that's true. But it goes so against our fixed ideas of inside and outside, our fixed idea of who we are, our fixed idea of I'm this separate thing. That even though we see reality directly, we can't recognize it because it is so at odds with our cultural upbringing. We can't find a self, but it's not nothing. There is no outside, and it's all intimate, and all dynamic, and all alive. We're doing Zazen. Zazen it can be inclusive of many different views and practices. But the most important one is whatever you're doing, your particular practice, the, the your experience. And how you turn the mind away from <clears throat> your opinions about reality and the nature of life, your opinions about the, the construct of ourself, and turn the attention towards whatever you have as the object of your concentration. And in that attention, in that looking, in that awareness, in that presence, right there, right there. Most of you are familiar with the story of a teacher who goes to, a student who goes to a teacher and says, what's the highest truth of Dharma? And the teacher says, attention. Yeah, got that. You know, heard that a thousand times. Is there any other truth? Attention. Well, look, you just said attention. So I know attention. I've heard about attention. Attention is it. What is the highest truth of Dharma that goes beyond attention? The teacher says, attention, attention, attention. So pay attention. And we can only pay attention to our direct, intimate encounter with our life. In a way, all of teaching boils down to, to two things. One is the encouragement that it's possible, keep looking, you can do it, and pay attention. Look closely, look before thought, look before I know, get really intimate. We have a big canvas in a museum, and we can see the whole thing when we stand way back from it, but we're asking people, or suggesting people, get right up close to the brush strokes. And the, the picture as a whole, you can't see anymore. You're looking at the brush strokes, and you're looking down into and through the brush strokes. And seeing the space, the isness which the picture occupies. Looking before I know, I am right, I got this, I understand. Looking before that is not ignorance. It's not some vague, you know, duh. But it's most of the time we don't remember we're breathing. Our breath is doing just fine. 
It's the I don't know that is watching the mystery of the breath being breathing us. It's the I don't know that says, wow, I don't know how thinking works. Pretty, pretty interesting. I don't know, but I will. I will. I don't know how this meal came here, but I'll eat it anyhow. Intimate, intimate, intimate. So we, the breath is working just fine. We're being breathed. We don't do the breathing. We're being breathed. We're being breathed. We're being breathed. And suddenly we become aware of it, and we say, "Oh no, it's too tight. It's too shallow. It's too." not deep enough, it's not right, I've got this lump here, and I've got this, this erratic thing there, and there's too much mucus. Before our mind got involved, we were just breathing, breathed. And it's that just being breathed and being aware of the natural full unfolding of life energy is part of the foundation of Dharma. So between ignorance and judgment, there is a place of calm awareness, being breathed, being lived. Wisdom is not about practice, not a matter of practice. We practice and practice and practice and practice, and that's not about wisdom. In a way, practice is about the hindrances to wisdom. Practice is about turning our mind away from the fixed views, the concepts, the ideas that prevent us from recognizing what is most intimately true, from waking up. One of the big challenges that we all have, especially this beginning of a retreat, and perhaps the middle and the end of a retreat, is we keep thinking about the past. There's no experience of the past left. There's only memory. But we chew over those memories and we, we try to manipulate the memories and we turn them around and we think about them and respond to them in different ways and we remember them with nostalgia or remember them with bitterness or remember them with and it's all the mind's machination. And while understanding the path and understanding history is great, wonderful, oh, it has a definite place for retreat, for seeing what is most fundamental, we're seeing what is most thorough, it does not require history. I don't think that Will and Ariel Durant or, or uh, William Churchill or any of the other people who wrote histories of the English-speaking people or the history of the world were wiser because they had this, these, all these thousands of millions of stories in their mind. They're really interesting. But for what we're looking at, for the place of liberation, it does not require history. It does not require us solving a past problem. We're here in Seishin, we're here present in this room, and really we can't change the past. Only imagine. Imagine if only I hadn't gotten 
bopped on the head with a watermelon when I was six, then I wouldn't be like this. And it's not future planning. Now, the most intimate future plan, of course, is how do I get myself comfortable? You know, well, next period I have a break, I'll go out and I'll do, you know, I'll get a little bit of tea or coffee and I'll walk and I'll breathe some fresh air and then I'll be comfortable. I mean, that's, that's, that's a minute form of planning. But we also start planning, we start analyzing, we start worrying about what may happen. Is Yellowstone National Park the, the great volcano, is it going to blow up and explode and cause a cosmic or cause a, a, um, a volcanic winter for the next six years in which we'll all die from inanition and lack of green things growing? And the mind catastrophizes and spins off and spins off. And it might be a little catastrophe that you have, well, I can't pay my bill about this or that, or it may be, you know, you have nuclear Armageddon or whatever. None of it's helpful. None of it's helpful. All of it's untrue. Whatever we fantasize about the future, it's going to look differently. And the further out we get, the more it diverges from our fantasy. So we come to Sashin. One of the two of the, the, the big disadvantages, the big hindrance, is dropping the past and future. It's just a hindrance. And how do we drop the past and future? We don't actually have to start working on the past and working on the future and try to see how we can undo the bolts that hold us there. We just keep dropping it, forgetting it, coming back to the breath, coming back to sound, coming back to whatever your practice is, and just don't give it any energy. This not giving something energy is how it falls away of its own. The the five hindrances are like that. Skeptical doubt, anger, restlessness, sloth and torpor, sensual desire. They just come up. We are tempted to fall back into our old habit patterns. If we give them energy through our attention, they grow. by giving them energy and making a nice narrative and putting a story in and trying to, they grow. But by turning the mind back to whatever your practice is, by turning the mind, by dropping that, by not feeding those wolves, they begin to die of starvation. And it's not an inhuman act to starve your demons. And you starve them not by doing something mean, but by simply turning your attention over and over to what is present, what is right here. The other challenge, the other hindrance at this stage of a session and probably throughout life is trust. Our life will be lived regardless of what we think about it. Our life will be lived regardless of our opinion. This session will be, will go through it regardless of whether we like it or dislike it. It just keeps unfolding. Every day just keeps unfolding. We will be breathed whether we like it or dislike it until the time comes that we stop. So the issue of actually trusting practice, actually trusting this moment, actually trusting that our life 
will be lived. To actually trust is a big challenge. We keep thinking we need to manipulate it, we need to do something else, we need to add something, we need to, 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 to glorify it in this way, we need to change it to something better. There is no perfect practice. There is no perfect way in. There is no easy way in. Because every way in hits our fixed beliefs. And anything that hits our fixed beliefs, there's friction until we let go. But if we trust our practice enough, enough to pay attention, enough to inquire fully, enough to feel fully, enough to to be really intimate with practice, then every practice is like putting a, a pen in a ball. Every practice keeps, if we go into it deeply enough, if we go into it, leads to the center. But as all of us have tried, we all know this from our own experience, we start you know, doing some practice, and then we think, well, I'm not getting what I want. Oh, it's too hard. Oh, this is not working out the way. Oh, I should be able to be. I should. Da, 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 da. I'll try something different. And then we go off and try something different. And then we go through exactly the same cycle. And we try something different. We try something different. We try something different. In the Korean uh, tradition, the Chan tradition, they keep emphasizing come back, come back, come back, come back come back. Every practice is actually inclusive. So if you're doing, um, uh, well, every practice is not about getting. As I said, it's not about getting wisdom or realizing wisdom. It's about recognizing that because we have allowed the hindrances, the obscurations to be drained of life. So each part of practice, each of us is like a hologram. That the hologram or Indra's net reflects every other part around from one way of looking at it. So Huang Po says, enter deeply into the mystery by awakening to it yourself. Your total life is it. In all its fullness, utterly complete. There is nothing else. Each of us utterly complete. Your life utterly complete. So counting breaths as a practice, utterly complete. Listening to sound, utterly complete. Working on a koan, utterly complete. Whatever we are doing, being breathed, utterly complete. If we're not standing outside of it. If we get in close and intimate to it, every practice is the flow of the universe. Whether we're doing, if we're doing body scans and we get really intimate with body, we are becoming one with the whole earth. It's not separate. If we're doing koans and we're really working deeply on a koan, a koan requires that we or answer it from the inclusive oneness, the non-separation of reality, and then how that functions, how that plays out, and 
in our dynamic interactions, some cause. So every practice is important. It's not as though there's a grade of practices. You start off by counting breaths and you end up by doing, you know, Dzogchen with koans. Every practice has the capacity to help us recognize awakening. Now, it is true that because of our stubbornness, all of us have different fixed ideas and fixed views, and there's sometimes practices are, are assigned to us, not because of its liberative uh, capacity, but because of our, it might help us meet our ignorance or our stubbornness. There are many koans that you just cannot get close to if you're stubborn and righteous. And you have to let go of them. You have to meet, meet a koan with a creative mind instead of your old habitual mind. Huang Po continues, even though you go through all the stages of a bodhisattva's progress toward Buddhahood, one by one, and in the literature there are 10 stages of a bodhisattva, there are 50 stages, there's lots of different evolutionary ways of uh, looking at this. When at last, in a, fla- in a single flash, you attain the full realization, you will only be realizing the Buddha nature which has been with you all the time. We talk about sudden enlightenment because recognizing that things are as they are right now, recognizing the truth of what is here right now, is not a matter of, of slowly um, dawning. We, we see things. But to live it, to recognize it, to, to embody it, takes time. So we might have some insight and then it takes time to digest. We might have some awakening to what is and then it takes time to really learn how to function from that. So, we're here. Got everything it requires for the truth of the Dharma, of life, to be revealed. If we let go of past and present, by past and future, present is actually a fantasy too, but that's a different issue. We have confidence and we have faith. Faith and aspiration is simply a direction. It's not a getting. If we have the faith that we will, that our heart's aspiration, our heart's desire will be met, if we have that faith, then the universe will keep bringing us opportunities. Things come to us. We don't go to things. Things keep coming to us. Just like the weather. The weather comes to us. We don't make the weather. Things come to us. People come to us. Things just appear out of nowhere and come toward us. And when our aspiration and our intention is clear, then things will keep coming towards us that give us the opportunity to recognize that, to embody that, to meet that.
it's interesting to think about or to watch we have the sense that there is a as for example we're driving a car and we see a light post down the road we watch it come closer and closer and get larger and larger and larger and larger and disappear but that first glimpse of the light post appeared appeared out of nowhere and then it disappears into nowhere and our mind says well there was a hist- there was a history there before even though we can't experience it that 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 little tiny light post that i saw that's only you know 6 millimeters tall is exactly the same light post that is passes me by that's 20 feet tall and that that light post that just passed by still exists someplace things are constantly appearing 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 and disappearing appearing and disappearing appearing and disappearing that's the way it works thoughts appear emotions appear trees appear grass appears pay attention to the floor the floor just appears see the hand the hand just appears things appear in our awareness and disappear and that doesn't mean that we can't use our minds to pay our taxes or do whatever we need to do with them but if we're looking carefully things appear to us and if our aspiration our intention is clear we have that vow that heart's desire that we actually are come into this world with we have that in our feeling form whatever that is then things that meet that will appear will appear will appear the challenges that we need will appear the cons that we need to need to our recognition will appear the people who are going to support us or obscure us or or block us are going to appear and some people appear so we'll rouse the energy of of wisdom to meet a challenge and some people appear just to give us love and kindness and support us but things appear we see things according to our own filter and if our filter is i want recognize deep awakening everything that comes towards us supports that look and see if it's true look and see if it's true divinkara buddha said that this dharma is absolutely without distinctions neither high nor low we call it bodhi it is the pure foundation of awareness which is the source of everything and which whether appearing as sentient beings or as buddhas as rivers as mountains or as data of the world which has form or whether not appearing as things that are formless like abstract ideas for example which have no form or as something that is inclusive of the whole universe like space the idea of space time the formless the, the essential nature of the worlds of form non-form and desire the essential nature of them is 
intimate and at their root without distinction. At their root without distinction. So we can see that root. We can know that root. And there are different ways of doing that. But the best one right now is to take whatever practice you're doing and become really intimate with it. And right there is the entrance gate to that root. And as those of you who know, the, the, the ten ox herding pictures, you know, the, they're about how do we get close to practice. So first we hear there's such, such a thing as practice, and then we have a particular practice, and then we do the practice, and then we finally become a little competent at the practice, and finally the practice, we become so uh, comfortable with it, and we're so proficient at it that it almost happens by itself, and then finally we, it's happening by itself all the time, and we forget the practice because it is doing us instead of us doing it, and then at some point, there is just the, the flow of life, and then all the demands of life require that we respond to them. The ten oxygen pictures are just about that. So may you drop the past, drop the future, really have deep trust, have deep confidence in this life that is living you right now. And take a deep breath, and let's continue with Sushant.